What's up, folks? You're listening to The Creative Leaders, a podcast that focuses on in-depth conversations with leaders, founders, and top creative talent working in animation, gaming, and beyond. I'm Stephen Scott, founder and CEO at Big Mouth Audio, and each week I sit down with producers, leaders, and creatives from gaming, tech, audio, film, TV, and more to uncover their stories and bring you the lessons they've learned along the way. We'll discuss the journey our guests have been on in their career, their approach to running companies or leading teams in the creative industries, as well as the ups, downs, challenges, and successes of bringing great stories and compelling content to their audiences. Hey folks, welcome back to the Creative Leaders Podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce Mick Cook to the show today. Mick is a talented media composer and the founder of Too Many Cooks Music. Multi-instrumentalist Mick has been composing for the screen since 2007, and his credits include Elmo Gets a Puppy for Sesame Workshop, Bits and Bobs for CBBS, and Zach and Quack for Nick Jr., he was also the trumpet player and bassist with Brit award-winning band Bell and Sebastian. So in this episode, we will hear about Mick's background, career journey, and insights into the world of media composition. So Mick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So um, to get started, Mick, tell us your origin story. What do we need to know or understand about you to give us some context on how you ended up where you are today, career-wise. Well, I think a lot of my career has been an accident um, to date. Uh, I actually went to study pharmacology at university, and um, actually, which I really enjoyed up until the fourth year when we had to do, had to start doing lab work, and I realised very quickly that lab work wasn't wasn't for me and that was to be if that was if I was to do pharmacology that was to be my life was to be sort of stuck in a a lab um and I just thought no this isn't this isn't I'm I'm not loving this at all and um I'd always played in bands right from the age of 12 I mean I played I was very lucky to have gone to primary school that had an or a symphony orchestra um it was just a normal state school in in uh Dundee and um they taught all the instruments of the orchestra and I chose the trumpet and played that in the orchestra there. And then my secondary school was great for music as well. I was in bands all the way through secondary school. And then when I was about 12, my brother uh, said he was forming a band, um, a heavy metal band and they didn't have a, a guitarist. So um, he bullied me into learning <laughs> how to play guitar. So that's what I did. And, um, and then I've just been in bands ever since. I started writing songs when I was about 13 or 14. And then um, all the way through university, I, I, we, we kept bands going and stuff. And um, when I graduated, uh, one of the bands, well, a band that I've been playing with called Hardbody, we got signed to Epic Records. Um, we were a, a trip hop band around about the time that that was the, the thing. So it's kind of mid 90s. And we, we were sort of billed as the next. Uh, the kind of Scottish Porter's Head. Um, and that was fun for a while. We did that for about probably about 18 months before we got dropped by Epic and a kind of a spectacular, I won't really go into it here, but it involved a roadie not turning up for a gig, um, a really massive gig at uh, Tea in the Park 
it was like our last ditch attempt to sort of say, salvage our career and the roadie never turned up. Oh, so no. the gig got canceled and we got dropped. But, um, I, I'd, I'd also had the, the for, good fortune of, um, I guess kind of being spotted, but it, well, it wasn't really like that. Um, I was playing in a university play, um, at Glasgow university playing trumpet and Stuart Murdoch, um, who ended up forming Bell and Sebastian. He was at that play, and about a year later, he came up to me in the Grosvenor Cafe in Glasgow and said, I'm looking for a trumpet player and I believe that you play trumpet. And I said yes, and then ended up basically playing with them. Um, so I, I was a session musician for their first record because I was I was with Hardbody at that point. And then uh, joined them in, in 98 and played with them for another 15 years, um, which was, yeah, it was fantastic. It was great, great, great fun being in that band. Yeah, I mean, that's... Um... I was going to ask you about you know the experience of, of 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 being in a band like Bell and Sebastian because it's yeah you know, I think you forget how how huge they are. I mean, I remember a point in time watching um, a, a series of films at the cinema, you know, a few years ago now, and it was there was references to Bell and Sebastian or their songs or posters in the background in the characters' rooms and stuff, and you're like, Jesus, this is, <laughs> this is a huge band, yeah. Um, so. What was? Do you want to dive into to, to that kind of that fifteen year experience uh, a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it was quite funny because we were a sort of self contained. I mean, they still are a very self contained unit. So everything that we did was for, you know, it's a it's a cliche to say it, but you know, we sort of made music for ourselves, and if anyone enjoyed it, then it was a bonus. But that kind of was how how it was, you know, right from the start of the band, and um, uh. Yeah, it, it started off not really as a, a band as such. It was more a project of Stuart's that just kind of grew arms and legs. He um, had this idea in his head of what he wanted to sound like. And it was this very kind of orchestral sort of chamber pop thing. And I mean, he literally did have, you know, that sound in his head and he had all the parts in his head. And so he was very much leading it. But um, when as soon as we kind of got together as a unit, um, it kind of, it kind of always felt a bit um, chaotic and like it'd fall apart at any moment, really. Um, particularly in the early years, um, you know, actually very few of the bands had much experience of being in a band. I mean, I, I probably had almost like the, <laughs> well, Stevie is as well. Stevie and myself probably had the most um, kind of previous experience. So I'd, I'd kind of done the sort of toilet tours with Hardbody and had been you know touring quite a bit and. We'd done a support with James, you know, we did a tour support for them and we recorded in New Orleans and Sheffield. And right. so it was, there, I had quite a bit of previous experience. So, and Stevie had, had also gigged quite a bit with another band. But um, yeah, we were just like a sort of self-contained unit. And um, I just remember the kind of early years, it was really enjoyable. I mean, when we take, we took quite a long time to make the third album. The first two albums were made very, very quickly. But from the third album on, I just remember that whole period being living and breathing the whole thing. We would like basically go into the studio quite often we'd go in sort of late afternoon and then we wouldn't be out there till six in the morning, you know, it'd Jeez. just be working right through the night. I don't know why we ended up doing that. <laughs> I mean, cause you, cause you can record during the day, obviously, but uh, for some reason we just seemed to kind of, that seemed to be our time when we kind of made our best stuff was in the middle of the night. And um, I just, yeah, nobody really questioned it, but it was almost like, I guess it's almost like a test of how much you want to live this life. And, and that really, 
yeah, when I think about the kind of almost like the happiest creative times of the band, it's like it's doing stuff in the middle of the night and just kind of in the morning you've got like a, a CD in your hand, which back then cost like twenty quid to get to get pressed up because CD burners were very expensive to to um to buy back then, but or you'd have a cassette or something, and then you yeah you go home, go to sleep, and then you wake up and listen to what you'd made, you know, and it was like invariably at that time it was it would sound totally amazing, you know. It's uh, yeah. and and you just kind of wonder how you ended up being in such a kind of for, fortune position. And, and it is just, um, you know, I, I really think that it, 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 music's changed so much since then. It, you know, I, I feel that um, I don't think many people will have that experience now because, you know, record studio, recording studios are closing down left, right, and center. So even the idea of a band going in and recording all night is just, I just don't think it happens much these days you know it's yeah. uh, but that that whole living and breathing something is just i i just loved it really yeah that sounds i mean that, uh, I, I can remember when i when i started off um and i had a, t- a tiny little music studio and uh we were we were obviously next door to, to to your your rehearsal rooms and we pretty quickly we were sort of told that you can't you can't do this during the day it has to be at night because of the drums and all that and the, the neighboring offices um, but there was something kind of magical about that sort of, you know, what, it'd be like one in the morning, we'd finish normally with, with bands and stuff like that. And, you know, you'd be sort of coming out of the studio and just that kind of stepping out into the quiet, dark night. And, you know, your your ears have been just like, you know, battered with like noise of drums and guitars. And there's just something like, there was just something nice and sort of calming and sort of, of, of you know, at that time of night. So, um, but it is a shame. Is it what? What, what stu- uh, studios were you sort of recording? And was it in and around Glasgow, or was it you know elsewhere? We were in the Savas Studios, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so not not yeah, not far from where the the band's uh, studio is now, um, Kelvin Grove, part of uh, Glasgow. Um, yeah, I mean that was a great studio, and, and I've got happy memories of that time. And then Studio One closed down. They sold that for flats, and then it went down to Studio Two. Which is much smaller, but actually still had a really good atmosphere and still made quite a lot of, you know, I've got quite happy memories making records there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it is a shame that they're they're kind of becoming a thing of the past, really, isn't it? Um, so, w- with that in mind, then making the transition from you know full time band member to to composer, um, but not only composer, business owner as well. Um, what what sort of inspired you to make that leap and make that change? Um, I, I'm guessing at that time as well, Bell and Sebastian would have been, you know, really at the height of their fame as well. Um, what was the catalyst behind that, and how did you find that tr- transition moving from a band to, you know, a, a business owner having to do marketing? And you know, I know you're a fan of getting out and networking at events, but also having to write the music. And uh, how was that experience? Uh, well, the main driving force was the fact that um, so we had our first child. We had, we had, a, a, had our first child. Uh, our son Ralph was born in two thousand and nine, um, and then we went on tour. And for the first month month of his life, I mean, I was, you know, I, I reckon it's probably four months on the road of his first month of his life, and yeah, I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. Um, I, I just wanted to be home. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I basically sort of told the band, and I think in, I think my last gig with them was December t- 2010. And I basically said, I can't do the touring anymore. And for 
yeah, I think it's for the next couple of years. I, but basically, I missed a couple of tours. Somebody took my place, and um, so I was a kind of non touring member of the band, but obviously that wasn't going to last forever. And um, round about that same time, 12, actually, it, yeah, it took a bit longer, actually. 2013 was the time that I actually um, left the band. Um, um, but actually, the, the, the Bell Sebastian had kind of more or less stopped touring for a bit because Stuart was concentrating on a on a on making a film. So, so I, I only really missed, I think, a couple of major tours. Um, but yeah, 2013 was the time I left. I actually left officially the band, and at that point, um, I had been working on animation up to that point, but it had been kind of quite small projects. And then 2013, you know, it's like buses that two big projects came along at the same time. So at that at that point in time, I, I left the band and, and concentrated on um, composing full time. And actually, I guess I didn't actually really form a limited company until the end of 2013. So. I was a kind of freelance, um, you know, sole trader for the first um, up until October 2013. I think is when I, I formed the company. But right. but yeah, you still got the same sort of challenges. Although actually, when you start out, you know, if you've got if you if you're lucky enough to start out with two big projects, then you're not really thinking in terms of marketing or you know you just think oh, I've got I've got work now, <laughs> and then yeah, that comes to an end. You know, so I had like 52 episodes of Zack and Quack, um, and the same number of bodge but actually bodge was a lot um that was basically doing songs so um there was a lot less work involved in that one than there was with zack and quack which was basically a new episode every week i had to score a different episode every week so you had to do like 10 minutes of music in a week and every episode was totally different like one was a ninja one one was set in space you know then one was uh you know a kite one set, set in japan so yeah, there's also diff- different styles of music you had to do. And um, yeah, it almost killed me, um, <laughs> but it was a kind of trial by fire. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. um, uh, it was probably the, uh, in terms of the first series to, to be working on, it was it was really great because it was not only a job and, you know, for Nickelodeon as well, mm-hmm. but it was also, um, so the high, pro- high profile gig, but also a really great way to learn you know, it's thrown at the deep end for sure. You know, it's like if you kind of got to the end of that, then you could pretty much do anything. Yeah. But um, I, I, I got to the end of that and then it was like, all right, okay, so that's great. So I've done a series and the work will just pour in now. <laughs> and then I kind of realized, actually, no, that's not how it works at all. You need, to, you need to go out, you need to meet people, you need to network, you need to find other clients, you know, and, and I, I just didn't really have a clue how all that worked. So that took a while to figure out. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of when when you sort of realise, oh, it isn't quite as easy as you first think. That's right. Yeah, I think we're we're about ten years in at Big Methodia, and uh, you know we we still get hit with that. Ah, oh, damn it! You know we need to, <laughs> you know, we yeah, need to get, you're, out you're, get clients. <laughs> you're you're doing you're doing what you love. You're in the middle of a project. Yeah. You're going, you know, and and basically it's taking up all your time. And then you kind of reach the end of it. You go, all right, I probably I should have probably been sending out emails whilst I was doing all that. You know. Um, and that's the sort of tricky thing. But. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, with uh, your, can you can you talk about your 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 process for you know? So when when you get these new projects and be it songs or be it score, what's what's your kind of process then to uh, approaching uh, music for media? Um, well, I guess it depends. I mean, if it's a job that you've pitched for, 
then the pitch is really sets that kind of sets the tone for you know what you're then going to provide because I guess you're that's been a test ground for both you and the client to work out whether what you're going to what you come up with is going to fit you know their idea of, of, of what they're thinking for the for the series or whatever um, and so in some ways those the headache is in the pitching because um, you know you get a brief and the brief is normally pretty vague. I remember one said something like, you know, it would be a, we wanted to be a cross between um, Art of Noise and, um, what was the other thing? I don't know, Bob the Builder or something. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's just like, and you're kind of like, well, what does what does that mean? You know, you've got to try and unpick what that means and then you just sort of deliver something. And quite often, the what the, what wins the brief, what wins the pitch is completely off brief. Mm, you know? So mm. um, it's quite hard for people to pin down exactly what they want. So, you know, I guess the easiest way for a client to find what they want is to put it out to 10 composers and whatever comes back that seems to fit the picture best is what they go with. But it doesn't make it easier for, for us, us guys. But um, but yeah, so that's where the headache comes is in the pitching. But by the time you actually get to this, the programme, um, if you've kind of set the template with your pitch, then it's kind of easier because you can then, you know, sort of um, use that as a springboard and, um, you know, iron it out as you go along. Um, if you don't have that, like you've just been hired, if you're lucky enough to have just been hired on the strength of what you've done before, which is, I guess, the ideal scenario, and that it's always really flashing when that happens and really, um, yeah, something quite heartwarming about that. <laughs> Somebody actually reaches out and you kind of and they go, oh, I like what you did with this. Can you do something, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So that, that, that's always a really nice feeling. Um, but then, yeah, then you're basically just, you're having to kind of feel it. You're having to sort of find your way into a, what to do. I mean, I, sometimes you get, um, you know, temp music and that can be quite handy because it's, again, it's a springboard. Um, quite often with the things that I work on, it, it all starts with the theme song. So, um, and that's the thing you've got to nail down. And then that kind of sets the tone for, for what, what comes after. So, I mean, actually, that the kind of brief on the theme song um, is kind of key, really, because uh, so I've only have I done no, I've done three three theme songs now, but the first one, Bodge, was um, they had quite a the brief was really great actually because it it, it it sparked you in a lots of different ways. They wanted it to be, you know, like a the the family was set in the outback in Australia. So they wanted to be quite sort of homespun sounding with you know ukuleles and didgeridoos and and um, you know jaw harp and and stuff like that, and so that kind of already straight away gives you an idea of the kind of thing you know. So you've got oh, here's my template. Um, I'm going to use these 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 uh, instruments and then take it from there. Um, and then actually there was one which was uh, number one Newton Avenue. Uh, the producer. Uh, had said that she really liked a certain Bell Sebastian song called I'm a Cuckoo. And she said, oh, do you think you could do something like that? And <laughs> I actually did something not a million miles off from that. It took that as its as starting point. And, um, but yes, yeah, so I haven't been sued by the rest of the band yet. So I think I got away with it, you know? But, uh, so, so yeah, so that's, that, 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 these things can be quite good if you just, if you've actually got a starting point, somebody goes, oh, I want it to be a bit like that. Yeah, yeah. I read something actually just a few days ago and it was um, talking about music and writing songs and it was almost, 
um, that way the, the author was kind of saying, you know, uh, when I sit down to write a song, it takes me days, it's usually terrible and, and all this. And then he said, and what I, what I decided to do was approach it as if it was a brief. Um, and, and, you know, it's like it needs to be this long. It needs to be about X, Y, and Z. These are the instruments I'm going to use. And then, and then it's done. So what I suppose putting you on the spot here, but what, what would make, what makes the ideal brief for a theme song or for, for a score? Um, you mentioned there about Bodge. Is it, is it talking about getting, you know, what instrumentation is needed? Is it talking about, um, you know, re like referencing existing songs? Uh, so I know that when we do voice production, our casting director loves to speak to the client and, and say, you know, wh which actor, if you could get any actor for this character, who would it be? And then that's a great starting point. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know because, you know, hopefully there's producers listening to this this podcast. What what makes the perfect brief? What makes your life easier? Well, I've had some really great briefs, actually, in the past. Um, I worked on a show called Dixie, and the, the creator of that show, Dan Berlinka, was really fantastic at giving briefs. And um, basically, he just he basically described what the song had to do, what it had to say. I remember I had to do one about, um, this is, you know, before I'd, I'd played many video games, and, and I had to do a, a one called um, the, Saint no, the Saint No Game. And it was about, basically, a guy a teenager who's addicted to video gaming and um it has he said right you've got to use uh, level up you've got to use uh you know um xp um you know all these great phrases you know away from keyboards uh all these <laughs> you know ac acronyms and stuff and um i was like so I, I went away and had to sort of basically like look up what all this stuff meant and um but it was great because, I mean, that, that really sparks you off. You know, it's like, I think if you've got a project where you actually have to do some research, hmm. it really engages the kind of creative process. And in fact, I read recently that, um, I think it was in that book, um, Incognito, which is a really good book about kind of uh, the subconscious. And, um, it's, you know, it's basically written by a neuroscientist, but basically there's, there's uh, you know, basically if you've got something that you have to do, let your, let your subconscious do the job for you. So basically, if you think about something and you, and you can't come up with the answer, just basically go to sleep. And by the time you wake up in the morning, the answer will be there. And it absolutely works, you know. It's, right. So the more you can feed your brain with the information about what you have to do. So if it's a song, what's the song supposed to be about, you know? Um, and you just put all that stuff in your head and then rely on your subconscious to, to write it for you. And it completely works. Nice. That's... Um... That's a great wee clip there for uh, social media. Thanks, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good book, that actually. It's a, it's it's really fascinating, you know. Right, excellent. I'll definitely check that out. Um, it's, it's, it's talking about how free will. We all believe that we have free will, but actually, we kind of don't. It's like um, if we think we've come up with an idea, it, it's not actually our conscious right, yeah, yeah. brain that's yep. come up with that. It's actually our subconscious that's come up with the idea. So, how much do we actually have free will? And the answer is probably not very much. Right, interesting. Yeah, yeah, of course, because it's just pulling on all these kind of external influences that you're not aware of at the time. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's almost almost topical with AI at the moment. It's kind of you know the original, <laughs> the original AI maybe. Um, what I was going to ask you about uh, the trickier parts then. So what 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 about um, challenges uh, that you've faced along the way? Um, particularly with uh, you know scoring for media, 
have there been any specific you know challenges setbacks failures um that you've had and and you know what have you learned from those uh from those uh, situations i think the trickiest part of being a media composer is a finding the work um and b uh pitching those two things are the biggest headaches really um so in terms of finding the work, I mean, I, all I do really is, you know, I think the, the person-to-person thing is, is so invaluable. It, it, it can't be replaced with anything really, which is why, you know, during lockdown, it was such a struggle for people to find work because you're, you know, you're so used to going to these in-person events and that's where you make your contacts. That's where you find out what's happening. That's where you, you know, you basically get a, you sort of read the temperature of the of the industry really. Um so yeah, I, I don't think there's any substitute for meeting face to face. In terms of pitching, you know, it's it's a numbers game really. So I mean, you know, if there's ten people pitching, then you know that is really, you know, it's a ten percent chance of of of, of getting the gig. Um, and so yeah, so you've just got to do as many as you can really. And and I always see it as being, you know, every everything is a learning process. So. You know, and the other thing as well, I'm not the kind of guy to really sit down and go right. I'm going to just write some music for the for the sake of it today. I I I, I think I'm almost programmed now to to write to a brief or to write to picture, and that's kind of what I need to spark me. So, yeah, if you've got a a brief coming in for a pitch, then you know just just treat it as as practice really treat it as like doing your homework <laughs> it's like you know with the added bonus of if at the end of it you get a gig that's that then that's great um but yeah i mean the first couple of rejections you get can be a bit of a quite a quite serious blow but you know again you have to realize i mean there's a great quote i was listening to um the rock and terrors podcast and there was a, a bass player who'd played with miles davis um and he was like a 19-year-old and he was auditioning for Miles Davis, who at the time was this obviously, you know, this was like the 80s, I think it was. So Miles Davis was this absolute legendary jazz player. And this 19-year-old kid goes in and starts playing bass for Miles Davis. Before he starts playing, Miles Davis says to him, listen, kids, you know, if I don't choose you, it doesn't mean that you're not good. It just means that you're not right for this project. And, you know, that is totally mm. the way you have to look at everything um, when, when you pitch something. It doesn't mean you're not good. It just means that it's not, a good fit you know mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely um, yeah and i always think about pitching as well as as just another way of marketing yourself and, and, and networking exactly as you say there you might just it might not be specifically right for that particular job but at least you're you're then in front of somebody else at least you know you're, you're kind of you kind of get that foot in the door um, yeah, totally, and, and sort of be, you're, you're demonstrating that you're professional. You've delivered on time. Yeah, yeah. The stuff that you've stuff you produced is good quality. Um, you know, I think always, always speaking to the people as well if you can, just to kind of establish. You know, if it's just over email, you don't really get much of a connection. But if you can actually talk to people, then it, you know, you can get to hear their voice, to get to hear your voice, and and just make, maybe make a bit more of a connection with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're spot on as well with the. The in-person events, um, we we tried uh, kids screen virtual, you know, uh, during lockdown, and you know, all credit to them for for getting it set up, but it just was not, it just wasn't the same thing at all. Um, and I, I often find that, or think that, you know, I, and you know, sort of mentioned this because I know that you and I go to a lot of the same events and have them for years, and um, I often find with 
with those kind of uh, events like kids screen and, and children's media conference and so on it's almost part of the journey isn't it it's kind of um it's it's when you think about you know the work that you've done and you know what you've achieved with your your business you often think about those events and those trips and the people you met and the you know the crazy late nights and all that kind of stuff um so yeah just just kind of picking up on that it was definitely something that i would you know i would encourage people starting out to 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 you know to get on a plane and get in a train and go to these things because it's it's um it's memory making as well i suppose um so we were going to ask as well so um moving on from that can you sort of share any you know particularly memorable moments as well or or memorable projects that you've you've worked on um that kind of that kind of you know stick out for you yeah well i mean in terms of media composing the the zach and quark was definitely like i say it was a trial by fire um and you know, it was a fantastic project as well, just because it was so, every episode was so different and, um, you know, the animation was stunning. And I also got to work with a, a really good friend of mine who's the, you know, the creative director and the the, uh, the creator and the director, Gilly Dolev. And um, so I think when you're working on a great show and you're working with your friend, I don't think it can get really, it doesn't really ever get better than that because that's, you know, it, it just feels... Um, yeah, it just feels really special. Um, but no, I mean, I mean, um, playing playing with Bell and Sebastian obviously was uh, has been fantastic, and um, we played at the uh, Hollywood Bowl with the LA Philharmonic in two thousand and six, and that was, you know, it, it was just one of those times where you kind of go, yeah, this thing feels like a dream. Mm. You know, <laughs> you're standing up playing in front of seventeen thousand people at the Hollywood Bowl Amazing. on a on, a, on a, a nice warm night in LA and uh, with the LA Philharmonic behind you. Um, and that kind of also fed into a lot of my work with, you know, working with orchestras and things. So um, that was kind of like the start of my journey of doing quite a lot of orchestration. But I really miss that actually because I, I don't um, get much of a chance to work with orchestras these days because, you know, like kids TV, which is what I mostly work in, doesn't have the budget for that kind of thing. So I'm using sample libraries, and um, so yeah, I, 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 it's, like, it's an ambition of mine is to get back into working with orchestras again because it's, I mean, it, it's a, it can be, it's very very rewarding mm. when you hear, um, you know what, when you when you hear what you've done played by, you know, like a sixty piece orchestra or whatever. It's it's, it's amazing. Um, it can be quite challenging as well because I remember <laughs> there was a time at the LA Philharmonic um, there was a technical issue which happens every time you go and see um, an orchestra playing with a band quite often the band have their drum kit set up at the front of the stage right? and the percussion for the orchestra is at the back of the stage now the LA Philharmonic is like an 80 piece orchestra so there's a huge distance between our drummer and their drummer effectively their drummer and, and the brass section as well which is right at the back and obviously they have to be right in time. But at the, at the rehearsals, you know, there's a delay between what the trombones were doing and what our drummer was doing. And so I sort of said to the conductor, oh, you know, there's a problem here. And he said, well, do you want to speak to the trombone players? I'm thinking, not really. <laughs> I said, right, okay, Mick's just going to explain to you what's, what's, what's going on here. And so I, I was saying, right, okay, 
Unfortunately, you guys are out of time with the drums, so we're going to have to sort that out. And this guy just stands up and goes, "Who are you? Who are you? Who's this guy? And what, what? What does he know?" And I'm just like, "Look, I'm not criticizing your playing. This is a technical issue, and we need, you need to get headphones or something so we can so we can lock this in." And once we did that, it was it was absolutely fine. But um, but yeah, it's, the, the computer, that attitude is, is actually not um, uncommon. Amongst the orchestral, yeah, I can imagine. There can be amazing players as well with great, great attitude, but you do occasionally see that, see that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> so, it comes with challenges. Yeah. Um, have you have you had uh, any experience with the the new place in Glasgow? You know that. Um, so I think it's Clockworks are, are, are working out of a space that um, Joe Logan's kind of built. Um, I've heard a lot about um, it and I need to go and check it out. In fact, I've, I've been in touch with them to go and check it yeah, out. So I'm yeah, going to yeah. go and check it out now, I think, yeah. in maybe next month, I think. Cool. See, see what's happening. Yeah, because I mean, they're doing some, I mean, they, they worked with Hans Zimmer, didn't they? And, That's right, yeah, um, yeah. Spitfire and things, yep. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a great space, kind of, I think it's a converted church. Um, so what's the, in terms of, uh, we, we kind of probably touched on this slightly before, but in terms of, changes to the industry that you've seen um again sort of looking at uh, you know scoring uh for for media is have you seen any changes since you started um since you started working in that area in the industry or do you foresee any big changes coming up obviously everyone's talking about ai and it's now you know playing a bit with music and stuff like that but uh, has there been anything specific that you've noticed yeah, I mean, it changes all the time. I mean, you know, I, I've obviously been in the music industry and sort of seen the the steady decline of recorded music, um, seen that fall into whole the whole uh, recorded music industry, um, and I kind of felt like I've then shifted into you know media music and and you know have seen so many changes over the last few years. Um, I mean, the biggest one at the moment is the you know the kind of buyouts. Um, Threat, which um, you know, I'm actually on a board um, for the Musicians Union and, and Ivers Academy about uh, composers against buyouts, um, and yeah, that that's really quite a worrying, a worrying sort of move that's that's um, that's happening. So, th- so this is kind of specifically clients are, are coming in straight from the start and and just saying this is this is what we want and we want to own absolutely everything. Um, are they? Are they then offering huge amounts of money on top of that, or are they kind of, are they kind of, um, is, is is there a divide there where it's it's not, they're not really offering the fees to cover that, or, um, you know, or or, or is the the kind of main issue there that um, they're then taking, they're they're taking the ownership of the music for a certain amount of money, and you've got absolutely no idea what they're going to do with it thereafter. Well, I mean, I think the it's rights grabbing for sure. Mm. I mean, there's some pretty big companies at it, and um, yeah, they're offering higher fees, but it's not nothing compared to what the royalties would be. Yep. So, I mean, which obviously it would make no business sense for them to be giving you more money than they're going to get back in terms of royalties. But um, yeah, no, it, it's it's a really underhand um, it's a really underhand thing to do. So, I mean, basically. Yeah, so that it, they're they're after the PRS royalties is what they're right. doing. They're they're, they're they're um, I think in some instances they're they're 
they're managing to achieve this. And they're kind of preying as well upon people who are not members of PRS. So mm-hmm. young composers straight, straight out of college who might, might not even heard of PRS. So, and they don't know what they're missing out on. I mean, it seems like a really good deal to, to you know, to, to be offered this money for. But if you know what the potential, you know, long-term royalties can could be, then it ceases to be, you know, as good a deal. So yeah, absolutely. Particularly if it's advertising or, or you were mentioning earlier theme songs. I'm guessing, um, especially in kids' TV, it's just sort of repeat after repeat as well. Um, so that that's interesting. It's definitely something that you know um, we've heard uh, other composers talk about recently as well. Um, can you talk about any any new projects or any, any anything exciting that you've got coming up um, that you can you can share or talk about? Or obviously, I know that you have uh, been making a, a move into games as well. Um, so it doesn't have to be a specific project because obviously, you know, most of the time we can't talk about projects that are coming up. But um, uh, yeah, could you could you sort of tell us a little bit about your your venture into games? Yeah, well, I mean, I started, um, really just started a year ago, actually, because it's, it's the Global Game Jam has just happened again this year. But the one last year was the first time I really started to look properly at games. And, um, yeah, just more or less, more or less a, as an experiment, to be honest, is what I kind of got involved uh, when it was online for the Glasgow Caledonian University um, and just really enjoyed it. And then I've done... Probably last year, probably did about five or six game jams, um, and then I went to develop, um, and yeah, made quite a few contacts there. It was it was really really great, um, and I've also been going to quite a lot of networking events in Gla- in well Glasgow, Dundee, and Edinburgh. There's there's an amazing um, games talks live. Um, uh, that's been a those have been a really good, really good um, bunch of uh, networking events. In fact, I'm actually talking at the. Ne- I think I'm talking at the next one in April, um, which will involve a kind of um, a tour of Dundee, Glasgow, and Edinburgh. Nice, nice. But yeah, so I mean, it's really just. Um, I guess it's still kind of early days, but um, just kind of getting to know the industry and, and um, finding out what's out there. Um, I've just we've just been working on uh, Sky Kids. I've got a new a new channel coming out, so there there there's a kind of linear channel. Oh yes, yeah, I read about this. Sort of similar to CBBS for Sky customers. So um, yeah, I've done a couple of uh, projects for, for for that. That's that's just about to to launch next week, actually. Um, so yeah, so it'd be interesting to see how that uh, works out. Excellent. But, um, Quite, quite exciting to see another channel um, in the UK. Yeah, especially at the um, moment. I mean, you know, with uh, you know children's content fun being cut and and, uh, and all these kind of. I mean, I suppose we could talk for ages about the the you know what's happening in children's media and animation at the moment. It seems to be everything seems to be getting put on pause or, or you know or, or dropped or, or what happened, what have you. Um, so it is really encouraging to see. You know, Sky kind of coming out with a, a dedicated channel, um, and 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 hopefully things like this will just you know get the wheel turning again, because uh, it you know obviously it will uh, eventually. Um, 
So just before we kind of wrap up then, um, do you have, uh, other than everything we've talked about, do you have uh, any kind of words of wisdom or, or advice for uh, composers who are starting out, uh, starting their careers right now? Um, anything that you could kind of distill down into a few a few sort of takeaways? Um, I think just get out there, actually, is probably the best thing I could say. And if you get a chance to play different kinds of music, I think that's a really valuable thing as well. It's, it's kind of, I find that to be a very, um, very useful thing for me has been to play all different kinds of music. So I've kind of, you know, played with, swing bands, I've played with a metal band, you know, funk band, um, I've played trip hop and, you know, indie and, um, yeah, I mean, obviously playing guitar and playing trumpet, you can actually play a lot of different kinds of music with that. Um, but particularly doing the kind of job that I do now, uh, having access to all those different kinds of genres is a really useful thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, uh, in fact, I don't, I, I can, th- I'm struggling to think of, a a kind of genre of media composing that actually draws on more genres than than kids TV because yeah. you know uh, even in the same episode you can be asked to do so many different kinds of <laughs> bits of music. Um, uh, so a parody plays quite a lot, you know, in cartoons. It's got you know musical parody is quite a big a big thing. So, um, but yeah, actually learning different songs is, you know has always been a really good thing. I, I found with the band with Bell and Sebastian, we used to do lots of cover versions, you know, we would do like a cover version, uh, a different cover version in the middle of every gig that we did. Uh, sometimes just, you know, asking for requests from the audience. So we'd have to basically try and work out the song there and then, right? <laughs> <laughs> which, which, uh, sometimes was quite challenging, but, um, and then actually latterly we realized that, you know, actually learning, um, a different specific song for each each gig might might be better but that really teaches you an awful lot when you break something down so you learn the baseline of one song or and and actually you know in, in media music when you have to kind of break down a, a song and do all the different bits of it and analyze what's going on with that again that's dead 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 useful because it it, it just kind of you know it's like it's, it's like learning your craft i suppose yeah yeah absolutely Brilliant. So uh, to close us out, Mick, so we're, we ask all the guests in this show the same question to, to, to close things out, which is if you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? So I kind of mentioned before we started uh, recording that this could be uh, around career, this could be um, personal. Um, it's quite a big question, but what, what would that what would that thing be for you? Well, I think personally speaking, I'd like to be remembered for being a kind person um, and hopefully, you know, generous with one's time. Um, but professionally, as a songwriter, I think it'd be amazing to just write one song that kind of lasts, you know, kind of, that basically lasts um, longer than, than, than you do as a person. I think anyone that writes or anyone that, that you know, records music, I guess that's probably what everyone would, would aspire to. Mm. I don't know if I've written that song yet, but it'd be nice to be to to, to nice to, to write a song like that. Um, so yeah, a big ask, but it'd be it'd be a nice thing to professionally achieve. I think absolutely brilliant. Well, you've certainly been generous with your time for us today, Mick. So really appreciate that. So um, 
So that's our that's uh, that's our episode today. Um, again, Mick, thanks very much for for coming in. Uh, if there's any any producers out there listening to this who are working in animation and games, uh, I would definitely urge you to check out Mick's uh, Mick's work. Um, if they want to do that, Mick, where can they find you? Ah, uh, too many That's cook with a, an e. C-double-K-E-S. Brilliant. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks very much, Mick. Uh, really appreciate your time today. And uh, we'll, need to, we'll need to catch up in person again soon. Thanks for having me, Steve. No worries. Mm-hmm.